Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Let's open today to the book of Romans. I feel like it's our last time in Romans because... This week and next week will be our last uh, two sermons in this first big section of Romans. And I sort of feel like I'm coming to the end of a series because once we turn into chapter 12, we'll be in a very different version of the book of Romans. I think you'll see what we mean in two weeks. I'm looking forward to today and next week as we finish this first big systematic theological unpacking of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we began all the way back in May in Romans chapter 1. And the question Paul brings to our minds today is one of family. Family is one of the most precious things in life, if not the most precious thing in life, except for our Lord and Savior and our salvation in Him. Family means love, acceptance. It means home, or at least it should mean that. And so when God says, my people... We should immediately think of this concept of family. When you say, my people, it doesn't sound like you would say that very often, but I bet you do. Those are my people. When you're amongst a group of friends or your family or some fan club or some club or social thing that you belong to, and you say, those are my people. When you think of your family and say, these are my people in the good and the bad and the ugly, especially in the ugly, you still say, these are my people. That is what it means to be family. Well, what does it mean today to be the people of God? When we say the people of God, a lot of different things probably come to our minds, whether you're thinking theologically or socially or you're thinking of particular parts of the Bible. What comes to mind immediately when I say the people of God? Perhaps it is Israel, the nation of Israel. And you think in times like these of conflict and war, those are God's people. Perhaps you think of the church. You say, no, going to church and being with the family of God, those are God's people. Maybe your mind goes to the Jews, God's chosen people. You say, no, it's the Gentiles. Those are God's chosen people. I might surprise you today that Paul, Paul would surprise you to say, yes, Israel the church, Jew, Gentile, these are God's people because there is one gospel and there is one amazing plan that God has been unpacking since before time, since creation, through Abraham, through his people, through the Lord Jesus Christ. One amazing plan of salvation to bring together one people in Christ. And so as we're nearing the pinnacle of this first section of Romans, we're getting closer and closer to that doxology that we recite every week from him, through him, and to him are all things. As we come closer and closer to that eruption of worship, let's pause to look and to remember this truth, that God will bring salvation 
to his people. And that people is the one family bought and redeemed and purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's look at Romans 11, beginning in verse 13 today. We'll read through verse 32. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you are cut off from what is natural, by nature a wild olive tree, and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience... So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Let's pray. God, bless now your inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. May we listen. May we obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Today I want to talk first about Israel, the first fruits. Israel, the first fruits. In the last few weeks we've been dealing with this question, have we? Who or what is Israel? When we say that word in a theological, biblical, redemptive sense, there's many opinions, many debates, many controversies about who or what we mean by the name and the word Israel. But I think it's important for us to tie our definition, at least here for now, in Romans 11, on what we've already learned from Paul in this same book. After all, we're in the same train of thought, the same passage, the same author, and he's using the same language that he's been using to this point. And what he reminds us back in Romans chapter 9, verse 6, is that not all who are of Israel are Israel. 
And so he wants us to understand from the very beginning of this whole conversation that when he says Israel, he is talking about a race, a nationality, a people group, but he's talking about way more than that because it's not the race or the nationality that makes someone a child of the promise. That's his point. Not all who claim Abraham as their father have Abraham as their father. Paul also wants us to remember that though it's far more than the race and the nationality and the people, back in chapter 11, verse 1, still yet, God has not rejected that race or that nationality or that people. In other words, though redemption includes far more than that people group called Israel, the Jews, it certainly doesn't include less than the Jews and who we call Israel. In fact, Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, this is the power of the gospel to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And by this point in Paul's ministry, many Jews have believed the gospel. We saw that last week, this elect remnant that God has chosen in himself by grace. As we go through the book of Acts, we see thousands and thousands of Jews coming to faith in Christ. Though many reject, there are many there fulfilling that great promise of God's remnant chosen people. So as great and glorious as God's work in Israel was in the Old Testament, we saw the book of Exodus. We went through Leviticus on Wednesday nights. As great and glorious as God's work in Israel was then, his plan and his purpose was always bigger. Look at verse 13 again. I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. Paul says, I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. It doesn't mean he doesn't minister to the Jews. But God called him specifically, Acts, verse, uh, Acts chapter 9, verse 15, said, I have raised this man up, Paul, to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Now, we don't know what the other apostles did, except for Peter, James, stays in Jerusalem. We don't know what the other apostles did, the other writers of the New Testament did. We don't have a lot to go on except tradition and some uh, manuscripts of history. But we know Paul's ministry extends at least in their thinking, to the ends of the earth, maybe even as far as Spain, as he fulfills that ministry to the Gentiles. A ministry that was spoken of by the Lord Jesus himself in John chapter 10, verse 16. Didn't Jesus tell the Jews listening to him, I have other sheep who are not of this fold. I must bring them in also. Jesus there talking about the inclusion of the Gentiles and Paul being sent as the apostle to the Gentiles to bring them in. So Paul makes no qualms about his mission. Christ came for all, the Jew first, but also the Greek, the Jew first, also the Gentile, the Jew first, but also the barbarian. Paul says, I came for all because Christ came for all. Paul says, I magnify, verse 13, I magnify this ministry. Not to boast in himself or to puff himself up, but what does he say? So as to make, verse 14, my fellow Jews jealous. The same thing he said back in verse 11. That God sending the gospel to the Gentiles, he says, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Paul magnifies his ministry to these people who were not God's people to magnify this jealousy amongst those who thought they were God's people. They say, wait a minute, Paul, ours is the covenant. Ours is the worship, the temple, the history, the patriarchs. That's us, Paul. 
And Paul says, yeah, I hope to build on that and so to build up that jealousy so that they might see God's promise and God's salvation going beyond them to the world. And he says in verse 14, the second part of that verse, and thus save some of them. I'm going to highlight that word some. It's going to be important later. Some will be saved. You say only some? Only some of the Jews? Only some of Israel? Yes. Only those who come to personal faith in Jesus Christ as their Messiah. Only some will be saved. Because that's the condition, isn't it? It's the condition for all of us. The Jew and the Gentile. Faith in Jesus Christ is what saves us. Nothing else. In fact, Paul kind of whittles down the promise of Abraham in Galatians chapter 3, verse 7 to this one statement. Here's how you know if you belong to Abraham. Here's what it means to be a true child or daughter or son of Abraham. That you have faith in Jesus Christ. It's important for us to understand this, especially in our, in our political climate and everything going on in the Middle East and Israel and Palestine today. It is very important for us to understand this big caveat of what it means to be a child of Abraham. That when God makes those promises to Abraham, blessing those who bless him, cursing those who curse him, and I'll make you a blessing to all nations, we cannot just take that promise and slap it onto a race or a nation and say, aha, that's their promise. When it might not be. Paul says this is the condition for being a child of Abraham. Not being just a Jew. Not being in the nation of Israel. But faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul points to this. He says this is what it means to be in the promise of God. This is what it means to be God's children. This is what it means to be God's people. And he emphasizes this ministry to the Gentiles, those who were not God's people, to inflame this jealousy on behalf of God's people. Those who do come to faith in Christ. Paul says in Romans 8, verse 30, those who come to faith in Christ are those who have been foreknown. Those who have been predestined, justified, glorified, that's who belongs to Christ. He says here in Romans chapter 11, verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Verse 5, that's this remnant, remember, chosen by grace. It's God's doing. So Paul says, I magnify my ministry among the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous so that perhaps some of them may still yet be saved through the gospel. And if they are saved through the gospel, it will be God's doing and his foreknowledge and his choosing of them to be his people. But for those who have not believed, for those who reject the gospel, Paul says, yes, some will still yet be saved, but some are under this judgment of hardening. We talked about this last week. God's judicial handing over, remember from Romans 1, handing over, giving them over to what they were already doing in sin and unbelief. God hands them over, and remember, this is just and it is fair. For God to leave someone in their unbelief, 
For God to hand someone over to a sinful lifestyle or sinful unbelief or continual rejection of the gospel, for God to say, fine, have it your way, is not unfair. That is absolute 100% justice for God to say, fine, have it your way. And though he may choose to save some, he may also in his justice leave some to their own demise. But remember, even that rejection bears more fruit. Even that rejection bears fruit. Back in verse 11, I want to make Israel jealous so that some will be saved. Here in verse 14, I want Israel to be jealous so that in the inclusion of the Gentiles, they might be brought in just as by their rejection, the Gentiles were brought in. This is God's sovereign plan, even in this unbelief and even in this rejection. This is God's sovereign plan to bear more fruit for the kingdom, for Gentiles and for Jews alike. And there's a greater promise here in verse 15. If their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? And this is a very cloudy verse as to what Paul means, life from the dead. I'm going to take a stab at it, and you can go do your own research and study time. I believe this points to a greater promise of a great revival, a great inclusion of people into the kingdom of God before the return of Christ. You follow Paul's logic to this point. He says, they rejected The Gentiles were brought in. The Gentiles are brought in, so hopefully they also, the Jews, will be brought in. And Paul says their inclusion will bring much more fruit and much more blessing to the world, even, even the resurrection of the dead. And the debate that rages, is this a spiritual resurrection? Is Paul talking the physical, capital R, day of resurrection? I think Paul would say here, the picture has always been that big. Follow his his train of thought here in verse 16. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Using this language of first fruits, agricultural language. Back in the ancient Near East, how the harvest would sort of come in those three stages. The first fruits the primary or main harvest, and then the gleanings that were left behind. The first fruits are just that. They're first. They're a sample of what is to come. They are the ones who came early, but it is not the main harvest. But according to Numbers chapter 15, verses 17 through 21, we see this law of first fruits. That in the bringing in of the first fruits of the harvest and the offering of the grain offering to the Lord, God says that is what sanctifies or that is what makes holy the rest of the harvest. That you take that first bit and set it aside to the Lord and you give it to him in sacrifice. The law says the rest of the harvest then is also set aside for the Lord. It is holy and it is blessed by him. And you see Paul's logic here? Yes, God started with Israel. God started with the Jews. 
Back in chapter 9, verses 4 through 5, we went through that list of blessings. Theirs was the worship. Theirs were the covenants. Theirs were the patriarchs. They were the promised people of God. Back in chapter 1, verse 16, to the Jew first, God started there. First fruits. But he doesn't stop there because that is not the entire harvest. But I want us to consider that, though. He did start there. And that's worth thinking about. He uses this image of a root, this image of this lump that is in the midst of all this dough, this root, this lump by which the rest of the tree is sanctified, by which the rest of the dough is sanctified, through which the rest of it grows. I don't know if you've ever made yogurt at home before, but I have. And I didn't make myself sick. I thought I was going to. I just thought it would be a fun thing to try. You throw a little milk in the, the pot and you heat it to a certain temperature. The recipe I saw, you put a little heating pad under it so it's not too hot, just hot enough. And all you have to do, all you have to do in this milk, all it is is milk, is go get a little spoon of plain regular yogurt with all that good bacteria in there, right? Dump it there in the milk in the pot. It's heated. What happens? That bacteria that's in that original tiny spoonful of yogurt ferments the whole batch and makes one big old batch of yogurt. Jesus' picture was of the lump of, uh, of, of yeast that's in the dough. That little bit of yeast makes the entire dough be leavened. Just one little bit. Paul says that is what one lump that then sanctifies and sets apart the entire tree, the entire batch. And because he started there, because he began with his people Israel in the old covenant, the first fruits, that root, that lump, the rest is holy. The first fruits are sanctified. So then if there's any harvest that's connected to that root, if there's any tree or any branches to come from that root, they too will be sanctified. God began a work in Israel. And though his work is certainly beyond them and more than them, it is not less than them. Paul says, yes, for now there's this hardening and there's this judgment while the Gentiles are coming in. But he says, remember, a great revival is coming and it will be glorious. A revival that points us to that final day of resurrection. And really, no matter whether Paul's talking about the literal day of resurrection or the spiritual resurrection we see day to day, don't they go hand in hand? So whether it's a Jew or a Gentile or a friend or a family member or a neighbor that comes to faith in Christ, salvation points us to that raising from the dead. As we see people come to faith in Christ, we are watching spiritual resurrection. And that points us to the day of actual resurrection. Just as much as God, by his power and grace, raises sinners to spiritual life, that is just a small promise of the day when that resurrection will be real and eternal and glorious forever. So that each new soul, each new believer we see come into the kingdom is but a sign of the greater harvest. Israel was the beginning of God's plan, but there's more. And I think I might just be willing to plant a small flag on the side that says, 
I think there might be a final revival, an inclusion of the national people of Israel through faith in Christ before the return of Christ. But for now, here's what we need to consider. We are not all there is. Israel was tempted to think that they were all that there was to God's plan. The Gentiles, Paul says here, they're tempted to have pride and be arrogant and think that they're all there is to God's plan. And maybe you here today, through culture, race, nationality, denomination, whatever it is, we think that we're the only ones included in God's plan. When there is a great harvest before us. And Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 9, verse 38, look, the, the fields are white, they are ready for harvest. Pray then. Pray then, Jesus says, that God would call and send laborers into that harvest. Pray that it would be you. Pray that it would be me. Yes, we've seen the first fruits. We can read our Bibles. We see the old covenant, the people of Israel. But now we see this explosion in the world through the church and the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a great harvest there to be had. Are we working and laboring for that? Let us pray for Jesus to do that. Listen, this morning, you might be the only Christian in your family. You might be the only Christian in your workplace, amongst your school friends, amongst your friends in general. You might be the only Christian. There's hope because you may very well just be the first fruits. You may very well just be the first part of a harvest that God is going to bring into your family or through your friends or through your coworkers. Consider that. Pray that way and then labor that way in God's harvest. The point Paul makes to us is to proclaim the gospel, to point people to Jesus, to be the voice of God to those who need to hear and let it start with you. Israel is but the first fruits of the bigger work of God that we now see unfolding. Number two today, we see some tree surgery. Now, when I think of tree surgery, I didn't actually Google search to see if this was a real thing. I, I guess there are real tree surgeons, right? Is that a real thing? I could only think of the three stooges who in one particular episode masqueraded as tree surgeons and got sent to the island of Rumboogie to look for this tree that did, uh, they did maybe not exist. But God, unlike Mo, Larry, and Curly, God is a good tree surgeon. In verse 17, we see this tree needed some surgery. Some branches were sick. Some branches had been broken off. And he says, Paul, and you, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. This tree was sick with unbelief. Branches were broken off. And in God's judgment, he was the one who had broken them off because of their unbelief. So that now as Paul looks at this tree, this sick tree, he sees these branches broken off, fallen to the ground in their unbelief. And he says to you Gentiles, to us, many of us here today, if not all of us, it's good news for you. Because where those branches were broken off and pruned and had fallen off because of unbelief and rejection, God has taken you, this wild olive tree, as little shoots and has grafted you in 
to that main olive tree. This was a very common practice in the first century in terms of agriculture. If you had a tree that was not bearing fruit, a tree that was sick, you could cut off some sick, diseased branches, branches that were not bearing fruit, and you could go and graft in healthy branches, branches that were bearing fruit, and in some cases it would revive the entire tree. And that is the picture that Paul is using here. This tree was sick. Branches had been broken off. Branches had fallen off because of the rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. These Jews who did not receive Jesus. And so Paul says, you Gentiles have been grafted in like that wild olive tree. These wild olive shoots grafted on there. But he says in verse 19, some of you you are going to say then, ah, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. And he says, you Gentiles might be tempted towards pride and towards arrogance over the Jews, thinking that God is done with them, God has rejected them, and now it's our turn. It's only the Gentiles now. But notice what Paul says in verse 17, the last part of it. You, you were grafted in among the others. Watch this. And now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Verse 18, so do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Remember, Gentiles. Remember, Gentiles, although you were brought into this, although you've been grafted into this, this was not yours by nature. God did not start with you. The first fruits are not you. You are not the root. There was a different root, God's people Israel. There was a different source, God's work and his promises through them. There was a different promise, God's covenant with them. And so although some have fallen off and some have been broken off, you who did not belong to that are merely being included into what is theirs by nature. And Paul says, remember, Remember this, Gentiles, when you're tempted to puff yourself up over Jews, maybe even in your church in Rome there. Number one, it is God who did this by his grace. It is God who grafted you in by his grace. And then he reminds the Jews, just in case you forget, and you think this is because of who you are or where you're from, remember you were chosen not because of how great you are, but you too were chosen by grace. You see Paul's point, whether we're talking to Jews or whether we're talking to Gentiles, this entire work is God's doing, one that he initiated, one that he designed, one that he accomplishes, and one that is absolutely and totally up to him and his grace. And so neither Jew nor Gentile has room to boast. The Jew cannot boast in simply being a Jew, so I'm God's person. Not necessarily. Neither can the Gentile boast and say, well, the Jews have been rejected, so it's all about us. Not necessarily. You are a child of Abraham through faith in Christ. And if you've come to faith in Christ, it is by the sovereign hand and mercy and grace and calling of God. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, what Paul says about Gentiles in chapter 2 verse 11 therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh 
called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. That's just a long theological way of saying, you Gentiles, you were called uncircumcised by the Jews. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul reminds the Gentiles, remember, this was not yours. And he reminds the Jews, and this wouldn't be yours, except for the grace of God doing that initial work in you. But God did do a work in his grace, calling, choosing, using them. And it's that same grace that called and chose Israel that now calls and chooses you who come to faith in Christ. It is that same grace that grafts you now as wild shoots into that tree. So whether you're Jew or Gentile, there's no room for pride. There's no room for boasting in this whole thing. It's all God's doing. It's not about merit. It's not about self-righteousness. It's not about your goodness It is about God's grace. And what does grace mean? Unmerited, unearned kindness and goodness to sinners. On the behalf of Israel, choosing and using a stiff-necked, unbelieving, hard-hearted people to accomplish his purpose. And I would just tell us he's doing the same thing even today through the church. Still a stiff-necked, hard-hearted, stubborn people. Yet God chooses to save and God chooses to use us. So while we rejoice in this grace, this gift, this promise of God grafting us into this promised people, there's also a warning in verse 20. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Paul says, yes, some were broken off. Some have fallen, that you might be included. Yes, God has made you part of this now. But remember, the only reason, verse 20, that you are in this now is God's grace through faith. Nothing about you, nothing brought by you into this equation, nothing paid by you, nothing earned by you, simply God's grace received through faith in Jesus Christ. Not a boasting, not a sense of pride. Because if we fall into that, we, we, we fall into the same trap as did some of the Jews in Paul's day. Ah, I'm chosen because I'm a Jew. I'm chosen because I belong to Israel. Abraham is my father. And we can fall into the same trap sometimes, can't we? You say, well, I'm saved because I did the thing. I'm saved because I checked the box. I'm saved because I go to church. I'm saved because I bring my Bible to church. I'm saved because I did Bible drill when I was little. I'm saved because I went to Sunday school. I was baptized. I take the Lord's Supper. Whatever list we conclude under there and say, that's why I am saved, we are falling into the same trap as Israel did. And it's unbelief, no matter how you cut it, because you're not looking to Christ for your sufficiency. You're looking for yourself. And Paul says that is the heart of unbelief. And that is what it means to be cut off from the promises of God. And Paul says, beware. He did not spare the natural branches. You're looking at the tree of faithful Israel. 
and you see branches scattered around dead because of unbelief, Paul says, beware. He will also not spare you. Calvin says here in his commentary, Paul's remarks here were directed to the sort of Gentile who was puffed up with pride for no reason, professing faith in Christ without possessing it. Now, there's a real difference there, isn't there? Professing faith versus possessing faith. Can you possess faith without professing it? No. But you certainly can profess it without possessing it. And Paul's warning here about such a profession. You will wind up at the exact same place that these broken, fallen branches find themselves. Cold and dead and dry, worthy of nothing but to be burned in the fire. There's a real danger here of presuming and assuming salvation because of you. Ancient Israel did this through her privilege, through her heritage, but it couldn't save her. And they found out as God broke off, as God pruned, as God cut, today be warned that he will do the same. Don't presume that because you've made a profession of faith in Christ that you possess faith in Christ. Do not presume that you are saved simply because you did a thing once upon a time. Be warned that through unbelief and rejection and continual unrepentance that you too may find yourself cut off. Yes, grace is free. Grace is rich. Grace is plenty. Listen carefully. But grace is not automatic. It is not owed to you. And we should remember who God is. That's exactly why Paul says in verse 22, Please, Paul says, note God's severity and kindness. These are not contradictory attributes of God. God does not operate in parts where he's three-fourths anger and one-fourth love or 99% love and only 1% wrath and anger. No, he is full and total severity and anger towards sin just as much as he is full and complete love and mercy and kindness to sinners. We can't forget this. Remember how, how God reveals himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 34. Moses has asked for God's name and God says in Exodus 34 verse 6, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, who forgives iniquity. And we say, okay, just stop there. That's the God I want. Loving, gracious, kind, forgiving iniquity. Amen. That's God. And he adds one more thing, doesn't he, in verse 7. Who will by no means clear the guilty. And while that might make us take a step back and say, wait a minute. Are you loving and gracious and merciful and forgiving or are you not? And God says, absolutely. I will forgive those who repent and trust in me. But those who do not have no hope. That is the justice and the goodness and the love and the mercy of God. And it would do us well, listen to me, 21st century church, it would do us well to remember both. It would do us well as we worship 
as we sing and pray, as we come into a place like this to meet with that God, that we remember both good, kind, loving, merciful, and just and severe. That word severity here means sharpness. I think Paul used it on purpose to emphasize this point of cutting away and pruning in this warning. God is kind, God is good, God is gracious, but he's sharp like a sword. And he will cut those off who do not believe in the promises of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 verse 12 that we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What does that mean? Press on. Persevere. You say, I came to faith in Christ when I was four. That's great. Are you still believing today? You say, I got saved when I was 13. Where are you today? Let me tell you, the proof is in the fruit. The proof is there. Not in what happened way back then somewhere that you forgot about with no fruit today. The proof is in the fruit. It's great that you made a decision when you were 12. It's great that you said a prayer when you were five. Where are you today? Where's the fruit today? If God didn't spare Israel, he will not spare you. Continue in his kindness. Do not continue in unbelief, Paul says. But I also want us to see here this door of hope in the gospel, even for hard-hearted Israel. Back in chapter 10, verse 21, God says, I've held out my hands to a contrary and obstinate people. Maybe God is doing that today for you. A contrary, obstinate, rejecting, unbelieving sinner. Maybe God is holding out his hands yet to you in patience today. And he's given you opportunity after opportunity, sign after sign, time after time. And yet you reject. There's still time even today. Look at what Paul says in verse 23. And even they if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in because God has the power to graft them back in. Do you hear Paul's emphatic language? Even they, the unbelieving branches of Israel who have been cut off, who have fallen, God says, even they can be redeemed if they will but come to faith in Christ. If they will but come to faith in the promises of God. Even they can be saved. God has a purpose in this to magnify his great, unstoppable, sovereign grace. Verse 24 says, For if you, if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own tree? Even they, if they stop their rejection, and come to Christ, God will graft them back in because he did that for you. You were cut off, and you were grafted into what wasn't yours. You were wild olive shoots. You were unnatural branches grafted into this natural tree, receiving nourishment from that root, sanctified by that lump of dough. God is, listen, God's done the hard part, Paul says. God has done the hard part in bringing you unnatural branches into the tree. 
And now Paul's question is, can he not go back and save his people? And it's an obvious answer. Yes, he can. And for many, he will. God has a purpose in this. You were cut off. You were grafted in. Can he not do the same thing for his people? So who are God's people? Our last point today. Who are God's people? There's great news for Gentiles here. You've been welcomed in to what is not yours. You're part of this now. Those who did not belong to Israel, those who are not God's people, God has brought you in. But maybe you still have questions. Well, pastor, what about Israel? What about the church? Who, what do we mean by God's people? Notice Paul begins with a warning in verse 25. Beware of pride. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to become unaware, my brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Paul warns the Gentiles once again, warns all of us once again, against pride. He warns any group, Jew or Gentile, of thinking, we're it. God is done. We're the last ones. We're all there is. All this type of thinking, whether it's Jew or Gentile, misses the point. Israel was hardened so that the Gentiles could be included. So that as the Gentiles are included, Israel becomes jealous. And this temporary hardening fades away by God's grace. And then we see this great, massive inclusion. God says to the Gentiles, don't think that it's over with you. It's not. Look at the end of verse 25. This partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So as regards to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Paul says in verse 26, in this way, through their inclusion, Paul says, verse 26, all Israel will be saved. Then he quotes from Isaiah chapter 59 and Isaiah chapter 27, pointing us to this deliverer, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one of God, who I would remind you this morning was a Jewish man from a Jewish town with Jewish parents. He went to a Jewish temple. He went to Jewish synagogues. He said Jewish prayers. He sang Jewish songs. He celebrated Jewish feasts. The privileges of Israel were his as a Jewish deliverer, a Jewish Messiah, a Jewish man. The promises of Israel were his. How ironic then that those promises find their culmination in him. And what is that promise Paul reminds us of in verse 27, quoting from Isaiah I will take away their sins. And what does he say to Joseph in Matthew chapter 121 when he says, Your child will be called Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Remember how Paul has defined Israel. Not just a race of people, but this elect remnant who have received the promises of God through faith in Christ. And so while some would say that the Jews don't need to be evangelized because they're already God's people, Paul says the exact opposite. 
Remember in verse 23, he says, if they do not continue in their unbelief, God will graft them back in. He will not graft them back in despite their unbelief, but because of their faith in Jesus Christ, because they've been chosen and foreknown by God and his grace. And no one comes to faith in Christ except by hearing the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. So lastly today, I want to point us to this remarkable truth that this is the same plan for everyone. God's promises are one. God's plan is one plan. God's people, listen very carefully, is one people. There aren't two tracks here, one for Israel or the Jews and one for Gentiles. That, that's not even in the illustration that Paul gives. He says there's one tree, not two. Yeah, you were grafted into this tree, but it's still just one tree. Not Israel and the Gentiles. Not Israel and the church. God's one people. God's one people. One eternal, predestined, foreknown track through Jesus Christ. So listen very carefully. While we distinguish between Israel and the Jews and the church... While we distinguish between those works of God and those covenants, we do not divide or separate them. There aren't two covenants. There aren't two plans. There aren't two peoples. There is just one. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. Remember, you weren't in this, Gentiles. You weren't in this. Verse 13, but now in Jesus Christ, you who were once far off and been brought near by the blood of Christ, so he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Watch this, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. God says to Israel in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, you are a royal priesthood to me. He says to the Jews in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, you are my people. I have chosen you. I have called you to belong to me. But notice how Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, says this to the church. The exact same phrases. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And while those promises might be to the Jew first, they are not to the Jew only. And that promise and that gift, Paul says in verse 29, are irrevocable because they come through one Lord, Jesus Christ who he says in 2 Corinthians 1.20 is the final yes and the final amen of all of God's promises. Gentiles, it's true, you did not have a part in this whole thing. Verse 30, just as you were at one time disobedient to God, you've now received mercy. Unbelieving Israel, though cut off, though broken, though torn down, also has hope. Verse 31, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by mercy shown to you, they may now receive mercy. 
Because Paul ends in verse 32 with this promise. God has consigned all to disobedience that he might show mercy on all. You weren't part of this. God brought you in by grace. They wouldn't have been part of this except God brought them in by grace. And so what's the great promise behind all of this? That there is hope yet for unbelievers because of God's great sovereign grace. Paul could have very well written some people off. He could have written his own people off. But he doesn't. He sees God's sovereign hand saving the Gentiles. And Paul knows if God can do that, if he can bring them in, Paul says, if he can bring me in, surely he can bring them in. Surely he can bring anyone in. I want to ask you this morning, these are a lot of deep, heady theological concepts, I know. But here's a simple question. Who have you counted out? Who have you just deemed as lost, without hope, too far, too broken? Who comes to mind? Here's the good news of the gospel. God is a great tree surgeon. And he has the power to graft anyone back in. The disciples were responding to Jesus' message to the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, 26. They said, Jesus, it sounds really hard for people to be saved. And Jesus says, you're right, it is hard. In fact, it's impossible. It is impossible with man. But you know the rest. But with God, nothing shall be impossible. No one is beyond God's saving power in the gospel. So pray and proclaim and live that promise and remember every day that grace wins. Nothing and no one is so broken that God cannot heal. And so as you see Paul's prayer for his own people, think about your people. Think about what you can do, how you can obey Who do you have in your life that you need to give to the Lord? How do you need to obey God and be the voice of God to those people? Listen, is there someone that you've given up on that you need to repent of that hopelessness and reach out once again with the gospel of Jesus Christ? The situation may seem hopeless, it may seem dire, it may seem lost, but remember, so were you. And the question you have to ask yourself is, did God find me? Did God graft me back in? And if he can do it for you, can he not do it for them? Let's pray together. And for my prayer today, I'm just going to close with this beautiful prayer from the Valley of Vision, simply called God's Cause. So let this be our our closing prayer for the sermon today. Pray with me. Sovereign God, thy cause, not my own, engages my heart, and I appeal to thee with greatest freedom to set up thy kingdom in every place where Satan reigns. Glorify thyself, and I shall rejoice, for to bring honor to thy name is my sole desire. I adore thee that thou art God, and long that others should know it, feel it, and rejoice in it. Oh, that all men might love and praise thee 
that thou mightest have all glory from the intelligent world. Let sinners be brought to thee for thy dear name. To the eye of reason, everything respecting the conversion of others is as dark as midnight, but thou canst accomplish great things. The cause is thine, and it is to thy glory that men should be saved. Lord, use me as thou wilt. Do with me as thou wilt. But, oh, promote thy cause. Let thy kingdom come. Let thy blessed interest be advanced in this world. Oh, do bring great numbers to Jesus. Let me see that glorious day and give me to grasp for multitudes of souls. Let me be willing to die to that end. And while I live, let me labor for thee to the utmost of my strength, spending time profitably in this work both in health and in weakness. It is thy cause and kingdom I long for, not my own. Oh, answer thou my request. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as